seated. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto the ages of all ages, amen. So we started this new series called Milestones of the Kingdom Way, and what we're really trying to look at, what we're really trying to clarify, what we're really trying to define is what does a healthy spiritual life look like? Last week we talked about how spiritual life is just that. It is life in the spirit. So it's, it makes sense that it's confusing for some um, what, what a healthy spiritual life would look like because it is something of the Spirit. And we uh, were read what Jesus said to Nicodemus, that the Spirit is like the wind. You, know, you don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it's going, but you certainly feel its presence. And in a nutshell, we agreed that we would... Ask for God's Holy Spirit to come and to dwell in us. And when we would feel His presence, when we would pray that prayer, we would throw up our sails and ask Him to fill our sails with the gust of His wind and carry us, carry us up to heaven to the bosom of His Father. And we talked a little bit about repentance and how that is always the beginning and it is always the beginning in every new beginning. 
In what would have been the Gospel today, um, if it wasn't the Feast of the Cross, we would have read the Gospel of the Samaritan woman. And Jesus is having this conversation with this lady at the well, and she starts asking him all of these questions, these kind of sort of theological and political questions. So tell me, you seem to be a really religious guy. Tell me, are we supposed to be worshipping in Jerusalem or on the mountain? We worship on the mountain, but you Jews say you should, we should worship in Jerusalem. What do you say? Um, and Jesus answers her and he tells her, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus says that if we worship God, we must worship in the spirit. Let me give you an example. If you have a friend who um, is from Latin America um, and uh, has never been outside of his hometown or his country, speaking to him, speaking to him in Arabic or in French or in um, some other language that he's not familiar in, won't be, won't be helpful. Let's take it a step further. A lot of people, a lot of people talk to their dogs and try to convince me that their dogs understand what they're saying. I'm sure that their dogs understand. I'm not so sure the dog understands exactly what you're saying. There's a lot of people smiling at each other <laughs> saying, see, even the priest agrees with me, right? So God is spirit. And if we're going to interface with Him, we need to interface with Him in the Spirit, right? And so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a spiritual life, nurturing a spiritual life, growing a spiritual life. And last week we talked about how repentance is returning to God and starting anew. No matter how far along I am, no matter how advanced I am of a Christian or how early I am in my walk with God, that that is always the mark of a new infilling of the Spirit. When God's Spirit fills us anew again or fills us for the first time, always it's marked by repentance. Jesus says something in Matthew which terrifies me. He says... This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, they worship me. Again, that word worship. In vain, they worship me. Why is their worship vain? Why is it, why is it um, something which brings nothing? Something, a, a vain pursuit, a pursuit which ends nowhere, a dead-end road. Why? Because they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So what is it exactly that God is after? Obviously, obviously, there is something particular. There is something that is needed. There is something which is worthy, which is accepted. And there's something which doesn't quite fit the bill. So what is it? We don't want to spend, I don't want to spend the rest of my life worshiping God in a way that's not what he wants. If your birthday is coming and, and I think you uh, totally love video games, I will buy you a video game, right? If you hate video games and I buy you a video game, it's not gonna make a very good birthday present, right? I want to know what pleases God's heart, what tickles him. So let's take a slightly deeper look at this word worship. The word worship comes from the same root word as the word worth. In simple terms, to worship means to attribute worth. 
right? So you're walking with your friend down the street and you're, you're walking down Queen Street in the fashion district and you're, you know, you're passing by all the displays and you see something and you see, oh, that looks like a really good deal. And your friend says, gee, I wouldn't pay five bucks for that, right? Obviously, you have a different sense of fashion. You have a different sense of style. Something is worth something to you, but isn't worth something to him or to her. So, all the time we do that, we attribute worth. Um, I'm reading a book. I'm always reading a book about productivity and like business and entrepreneurship and stuff like that because I don't know anything about that. So I'm always trying to learn. I love learning new things. So I'm reading a book about that now. And he's talking about decluttering your life, particularly your work life and the work processes in your work culture. Anyhow, this particular author says, when you come to unclutter your closet, he says, it's really hard because a lot of things there have emotional attachment and it's been proven, I guess in some psychological literature or something, he doesn't, he doesn't give any references, that stuff that you have has more worth to you than if you didn't have it. For example, he says, if you look at this old sweater that you haven't worn for a year and you say, no, I can't, I can't get rid of that sweater because of da-da-da-da-da, this person gave it to me, I wore it on my first date, blah-blah-blah, I don't know, right? This sweater is really valuable to me for X reason. He asks you a question. He says, if you didn't own that sweater, not that sweater in its new condition, but that sweater as it is right now, how much would you pay for it? Would you go, would you go out of your way to buy it? If not, and you don't use it, maybe you should get rid of it. The idea is, is that we all attribute worth to things. Something is worth a lot to me, something is not worth a lot to me. I might have an old coffee table. I used to have this really, really old coffee table and it was broken and it was just like it was falling apart and I was always patching it together, but it meant the world to me. Why did it mean the world to me? Because I played cards on that, on that coffee table with my grandmother for years and years and years and years. My grandmother's gone on to heaven now and I love her, and so that coffee table means the world to me. The coffee table didn't mean nothing to Mary. Guess what happened to that coffee table? <laughs> right? I'm just joking. It, it left our lives long before marriage, right? But, but the idea is we attribute worth. I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. What is God worth to you, and how do you express it? The answer to that question is your worship. The answer to that question is your worship. The definition, if we're going to look at like, you know, definitions from Bible dictionaries of what the word worship means, it means to kiss the hand towards one in a token of reverence. Among Orientals, especially Persians, to fall upon one's knees and touch one's face and forehead to the ground as an expression of profound reverence. In the New Testament, New Testament by kneeling or prostrating to do homage or to take obeisance, like to, to, to show that you are obedient, whether in order to express respect or to make supplication. So that's kind of a def definition in, um, from, from a Bible dictionary. I want to ask you a question from that definition, if I act it out for you. So it's saying you do this, right? Either to kiss the hand or to bow down with one's face to the ground. What happens in both situations? What is there? In medieval times, in medieval times, 
to bare the back of your neck, to bow your head, was to give your life to the person in front of you. Suppose the king calls in, you know, whatever, some, some person in his kingdom. If that person bows their head before him, the king can just call one of the soldiers and just go like this, right? And he's defenseless because he's burying the back of his neck. That is the ultimate, the ultimate and complete form of worship is complete and unlimited submission and surrender. Now, it's great that I can do that. It's great that I, if I have the physical ability to get down on my knees, or if I don't, I can, I can bow my neck. But Jesus says, these people honor me with their tongues, but their hearts are far from me. So I'm not so sure that he cares so deeply if I honor him with my tongue and my knees, if my heart is still far from him. To worship is to attribute worth. The reason, the reason that our worship, your worship, my worship, your own personal worship, and we're going to see that worship is like a salad, like there's like a lot of stuff in the salad, right? The reason that worship is so important is because when they came to ask Jesus a question, they wanted to ask him a tricky question. So they asked him, so which is the first commandment? Jesus answered them and said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Worship is the product of that first commandment. I will worship God in as much as I love Him. But the, this... This uh, commandment that Jesus is, is reciting and giving to us, he doesn't say, now check it out, look, look into your heart, your mind, your soul, your body, look into, look, in, look into these things and see how much of it you want to give to God. That's not the commandment. The commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. That, that's where we're aiming. I'm a bit of an idealist in my heart. Over time, I've learned that my ideals are sometimes things that will take a long time to reach, and I've kind of accepted that. But I still think it's valuable to set, to set our ideals as a target. I may not be there. I may be leagues and miles away. I might be so far away, it's depressing to even think of what the ideal is. Don't get depressed. Don't fall in despair. Don't be sad. Set the target and trust God who brought you here to get you, to take you there. To worship is to attribute worth. To love God and to express it. The expression of worth. The expression of love to God. The expression of taking joy and finding satisfaction in God. Now I want to break up worship into two areas. These talks, all these after liturgy talks, are all intended to be very practical. If you don't take anything home... Please apply to the board to fire me, okay? Because you're supposed to take something you can do today home with you every single Sunday. We're going to break it up into two parts, and then we're going to look more deeply inside it. The first part is the, the attitude. The second part is the how. The attitude is very simply this. Philippians 1, 20 and 21 says this. That is... According to my earnest expectation, St. Paul writes, and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, 
But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. St. Paul writes this as he's in the dungeon, as I was mentioning in the, in the Sunday sermon. As he's in the dungeon, he's in like the pit of the prison and he's on death row. And he knows his time is going is, 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 is to be short. He says, I don't know whether I'm going to live or I'm going to die, but I know this. I know this for sure. In all things, I will not be ashamed. I was shocked one weekday liturgy. One weekday liturgy during Lent when we read prophecies. There was a prophecy from Joel and then a prophecy from Isaiah and then another prophecy from Joel. And in all three of them, there was the same verse repeated. Those who trust in you shall never be ashamed. I think the church is trying to tell us something. I think the church is trying to tell us something. Trust in God and you will not be ashamed. All the people who wrote that, St. Paul himself, they weren't perfect. They weren't perfect. I'm not perfect. But there is a way for me, there is a way for me to receive the perfection of God by grace. Him giving it to me. Not because I deserve it, but because he is a very, very good God. But he continues and he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now I want you and me to fill in the blanks. For me to live is and to die is suppose. Okay, I'll give you like a caricatural example. Suppose I'm really greedy and I'm really money hungry. I am like, you know... Um, Ebenezer Scrooge, right, from like a, a Christmas tale, right? I love money. I sit there counting my money, counting my money. That's what I do with my evenings. People go out, they have a social life. I sit there counting my money, counting my money, counting my money. For me to live is money. And to die would be lose the money, right? Simple. It's a very simple concept. Everything in the Bible, by the way, is very simple. Sometimes there's just a little bit historical context or something. We need to understand what it's saying. So for me to live is, in this example, money. To die would be to lose all my money, right? Have you ever heard the expression, if da-da-da-da-da, life wouldn't be worth living anymore? Right? Now you fill in the blanks. For me to live is... And to die is, what's in those blanks for you? What's in that blank for you, if you're not echoing St. Paul, if I'm not echoing St. Paul, what's in that blank is what's preventing me from worshiping God with all my heart and all my soul. And until I give it up, in some fashion or another, I'm never going to be able to fulfill the first commandment. And Jesus says all the other ones come after this. They all hang on this one. Get this one right and all the other ones, love your neighbor, is attached to it and so on and you know, don't steal and don't this and don't that and do this and do this and that. They all are, they're all connected to that one. Fill in the blanks. Worship comes from a satisfied soul. St. Paul says, I'm satisfied. This is a beautiful example of St. Basil. St. Basil was denouncing the emperor for some of his policies. So the emperor took St. Basil and threw him in prison. And he threw him in prison and he left him there. He said, I'll leave him there for a few days so you can wise him up. Wise him up. 
He heard nothing from St. Basil. So he brought him into, the, into the, 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 the court, the palace. The emperor was Christian, but he was doing funny business. So St. Basil was denouncing him. So he brings him into the, in, into the court and he tells him, if you don't stop speaking you know, trash about me, I'm going to keep you in prison forever. St. Basil says, ah, you will liberate me from the burdens of the bishopric and all the responsibility. Thank you. I will be able to return to my solitude as I was a monk beforehand. Thank you for this great gift. And he told him, what? In prison, you sleep like on a stone bed. He told him, you don't sleep like you do in the bishopric. He said, I, ever since I became a monk, I've slept on the floor for the love of my savior. He told him, you'll only eat cooked vegetables. He said, I only eat raw vegetables. I don't eat, I don't eat anything cooked in the first place. He told him, I will kill you. He said, you'll send me to my beloved. Thank you. So he threw him back in prison. He didn't know what to do with him. He didn't know what to do with him because the blanks were empty. The blanks only had Jesus. St. Paul was really smart. He was really, really smart. He realized, you're, I'm only going to be happy if I put all my eggs in one basket and I'm guaranteed that I can never lose that basket. I was... Um, listening to the radio or something, and they were talking about Warren Buffett's um, um, uh, uh, investing strategies. And he was, they were saying that Warren Buffett realized very early in his career that it's unlikely that he's going to be able to make a multitude of amazing investing decisions. Probably he's going to make some good decisions and some bad ones. So he decided that he will make very few decisions, but decisions in which he had a very, very high level of certainty. They say that all of Warren Buffett's wealth, or almost all of his wealth, can be attributed to less than 10 investment decisions that he made. St. Paul realized the same thing 2,000 years ago, not with the stock exchange, but with life. I want to choose one thing, and I want to put all my eggs in that basket, and I want to make sure that that's one basket I can never lose. What about me? What about you? I have a multicolor basket with all kinds of multicolor stuff in it, right? I was um, with my spiritual father once and um, we stood up to pray. So he said, which way is east? So I smiled and I told him, does it really matter? And he smiled and he looked at me and he said, no, it doesn't really matter. But it's good for us to face east. And I told him, why? I, I, I've known this all my life, but I've never really bothered to ask why? So I was challenging him. He said something to me. He said, every time we face east, we're doing exactly what we did in our baptism. We're turning away from the west. If I want to face east, y'all are west is that way. So if I want to face east, I'm going to have to turn my back on you. Turn my back on the west, right? So when we face east, we're telling God, God, you have my undivided attention. May that be not only our disposition in prayer, but may it be our disposition in life. May look towards the east not be something that the youngest deacon in the church says during the liturgy, but something 
that my soul is saying to me every moment of every day, John, look towards the east. John, turn towards the east. And you see here again how the church is always positive. It's always, the church doesn't say turn away from the west. The church says turn to the east. Look to the east. Renew your baptismal commandment. Renounce Satan and all his evil works and accept Jesus, O oh my soul. That's what look to the east really means. Jesus commands us, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Let's get really practical. We talked about worship. We talked about the disposition. Let's talk about, let's get really, really, really practical. Worshiping God can come in a variety of different flavors. And my suggestion and recommendation to you as my beloved, my friends, is this. Try to get familiar with all of these different forms of worship. Some may mean more to you personally. Some may be more meaningful to you as a person. But different stages of life, different things happen. And at different times in life, some forms of worship become nearly impossible for you to do. And you'll understand what I mean. So, private can be, uh, worship can be private, Jesus says. But when you enter into your room, having shut your door, pray to your father who's in secret and your father who's in secret will himself reward you openly. There's nothing that can replace the time that you have alone with God. Early, early, early in my priesthood, I was speaking with, uh, with uh, you know, one of the, our congregants who's since now moved away. Um, and he was telling me, Father John, I need to understand something. Why are our prayers so repetitive. Like we say, Lord have mercy about 18 million times. He counted 18 times that we pray our father who art in heaven in one service. Like did God not hear us the first time? Was he asleep? Okay. The second time he must have got it by the third time. Even he's getting bored. Why 18, you know? And, um, and, uh, you know, I gave him like an answer, like just so I didn't look stupid, but the, the honest reality is I wasn't so sure. So I went and asked my spiritual father, And I asked him, and he told me, when you see him next, ask him cumulatively over six days of the week, Monday through Saturday, how many minutes or hours or longer he spends in prayer. And ask yourself, Father John, my spiritual father was telling me, is it reasonable that someone who spends five or 10 or 20 minutes in prayer all week long over a span of six days will come and pray from all their heart for for a whole two hours? And so I had that conversation with him and we developed a way that he could come, you know, and and be able to enjoy the time of worship that he was here for. Lo and behold, within months, he was attending the liturgy from very early. It all starts, it all has to start in the secret place. It all has to start there. I was so moved. I was so, so moved when I was hearing a talk by a bishop um, in May, like a year ago now almost, about conflict resolution. He was talking about conflict resolution in many different contexts, but particularly between leaders. And he was talking about how, um, how we should deal with conflict amongst Um, you know, that we have with other people who are in a position of leadership, if we ourselves are in a position of leadership. But it could apply to anything. Now, the guiding principle that he was using for conflict resolution was this. I have to be ever so careful that I don't sin, lest I lose my private prayer life with God. He says, if I sin 
and I'm unknowing, I'm, I, I sin unknowingly, it will harden my heart and I won't be able to connect with God and enjoy God in my private prayer space. That was his guiding principle. Like, at all costs, at all costs, he was willing to, to protect and to defend his private place of prayer. His closet, as Jesus calls it. How about me? I suggest to you that you find a space. I, I, I really think, I tried for many years telling people, it's okay, you know, just pray to God in your heart. Find a place in your heart. A place in your heart is great. You need that. But honestly, it just works so much better if you have a physical location, a physical geographic location. It doesn't have to be big. It can be, could be a room in your home, or it can be a closet, or it can be a corner, or it can be just somewhere where you can be alone with God. You know, you know what? There's something special about corners. When you stand in a corner, you're, you can be alone. That's why... When I used to get punished in elementary school, they tell me to go to the corner, right? Because I'd be alone. If you get into a fight and there's eight of them and one of you, what do you do? Hopefully that won't happen to you, but you look for a corner. Why? Because then they can only come at you from one side, right? In prayer, in prayer, when I go and I face a corner, I shut out the rest of the world. I'm shutting out the rest of the world. If you can't find a, a room or a bigger space or whatever, find even just a corner in your room and make that your meeting place with God. You can meet God anywhere and everywhere. You can pray on the bus, at work. Uh, you know, I've many times uh, you know, told stories about how at work I'd be having a horrible day and I'd go just to the washroom and I'd pray in a washroom stall, you know? And that would become the throne of God to me. Yes, all of that is good. But if you can find a prayer corner and you can meet God there personally, private worship is indispensable. Well, what's the opposite of private worship? Communal worship or corporate worship, right? Jesus, Jesus says to us many, many times, he talks about that. And St. Paul speaks about it beautifully. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, he says, For we are members individually, but we are all members of, of, one, of one body. For as the body has many, has one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. So also is Christ. So I, I have to have some form of corporate worship. You'll notice that all the language of the liturgy is in the plural. Amen, 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 your death, O Lord, we proclaim through the intercessions of the Theotokos St. Mary, O Lord, grant us the forgiveness of our sins. We praise you, we bless you, we serve you, we worship you, right? All of the language in the liturgy is plural. There has to be some sense of corporate worship. If you um, have an opportunity to meet any of the um, um, ascetics and hermits, the people who live like in a cave in the forest or in the desert or so on. Their, their initial questions are always, always asking about the well-being of the world. Why? St. Anthony went and met St. Paul the Hermit and St. Paul the Hermit had not seen the face of another human being for 60 years. 60 years. His first questions were, how are things going in the world? He asked four questions and they all had to do with the well-being of the world. He was not separate from the world. His heart was still there. He asked, is, is, is the leader a tyrant? Is there famine? 
Is there sickness, like pestilence? And is there war? All of his concern. He didn't ask St. Anthony, who are you? Where did you come from? How was the way? Was it too far for you? Did you get hot while you were walking in the desert? He, was, he didn't ask. He didn't make any small talk. All he asked about was the well-being of the world. He was not socially disconnected. He was very much connected. Although he, he had been away, away from all human contact for 60 years, a lifetime for some of us. One of those corporate forms of worship is the Eucharist. And of course, like there isn't enough time and space to speak enough about the liturgy and the Eucharist, but the word liturgy itself means work of the people. God is inviting you and is inviting me to worship with my brothers and sisters. And of course, there are a multitude of other ways of doing that. Psalms. There's nothing like the Psalms. I have personally witnessed demons being cast out when somebody recites Psalms. The Psalms have endless power. I promise you, I, I, was, I was moody, very, very moody as um, a teenager. Of course, now I don't have mood swings anymore. No, not at all, right? So I, I would call my spiritual father and tell him, I'm so upset about this and that. And he'd tell me, read the Psalms. And I'd tell him, oh, uh, sure, Father, yeah, which ones? He'd say, oh, all of them. All of them? I'd say, yeah, all of them. See, it'll take you about three and a half to four hours. Three and a half if you're a fast reader and four if you're slow. In, uh, in Ephesians, St. Paul tells us, he tells us to be wise and to understand what the will of the Lord is, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always. St. Paul is saying here, St. Paul talks about praying in tongues in, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. St. Paul speaks about uh, orderly and corporate worship elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. But St. Paul speaks here about praying with psalms. So it's not necessarily one or the other or the other, but all, right? I have to tell you the truth. The psalms that I know off by heart, I find it a lot easier to pray with. I am really bad at learning things off by heart. And in today's information age where everything is in the palm of your hand, it's kind of hard to convince myself that I should learn, that I should take some time to learn this off by heart. Now the good news I have for you is this, is I set it in my heart to try to memorize one psalm a week. And I figured within three and a half to four years, I would know all the psalms off by heart. So I started, right? And I can tell you this, they're a lot easier to memorize, even for somebody who's really poor at memorizing. I'm poor in all, like, all literary skills. Like I'm, I'm very bad at them. And I, and I actually found it very, very easy. Another form of worship is spontaneous worship, right? These are all kind of things that we discuss that require some forethought or some planning. What about spontaneous worship? Psalm 86 verse 12 says, I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, I will glorify your name forever. That all my heart oftentimes is hard to do without some degree of spontaneity. Allow your relationship with God to have some form of spontaneity. Lastly, I want to talk about continual prayer. Continual prayer is this, is this thing that some of us find a little bit challenging. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.17, he says, pray without ceasing. How can somebody pray without ceasing? How can somebody pray in the shower, while they're asleep, while they're eating, while they're doing other necessary activities of daily life? 
The answer is very simply this. If I train my heart to pray all the time, it will continue to pray even in the absence of my mind. Even when my, when my mind is not there because it's somewhere else, my heart will continue to pray. And the first place that we encounter that, once I get going on this, is when I wake up in the morning. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I find my heart repeating a certain prayer. My suggestion, and the suggestion of the Orthodox Church, is the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, the sinner. And you can part that down, you know, as much as you like. If, if, if there's a formulation which is more comfortable for you, Lord, help me, Lord Jesus, help me, whatever. But there's only one part of that prayer which is absolutely essential that you can't cut out which is the name of Jesus, because the name of Jesus is a strong tower and all who run to it are, are safe, like it says in Proverbs 20, right? And the word of the Lord shall not return to me void, says Isaiah in chapter 55. The name of, of Jesus has so much power. Use the name of Jesus in your, in your prayer, and if you can learn to pray continually, it will be, it will be a source of great comfort to you. I want to take all of this and I want to sum all of this up. So you take a little bit from here, you're going to the salad buffet, you know, and you take a little bit of this, you know, a little bit of lettuce and a little bit of spinach and a few beets and a few tomatoes and a few cucumbers and you're taking a little bit from here and a little bit from there and all of it comes together to make your own personalized salad. That's what we call a prayer rule. The word prayer rule or spiritual rule has been grossly misunderstood and as a consequence grossly misused by a lot of people and has become oppressive to them. We don't want anything in your spiritual life to be oppressive. Jesus came to set us free, not to oppress us. So our prayer should not be oppressive. It shouldn't be something which is squashing you. It should be something which is liberating and setting me free and giving me tools and freedom to worship God in the way that is most suitable in that moment. So what, where, did we, where did we go wrong? Oftentimes I think of a spiritual rule as something that I have to do. So there are check boxes. So every day I have to pray, I have to do 10 prostrations, I have to pray the Jesus prayer for this long, I have to this, I have to that, I have to read the Bible and so on. So I have these check boxes and if I do them, I'm a good person. And if I do them, I'm bad. The problem with that is you lose either way. If I do them, I'm a good person and I become self-righteous. And if I don't do them, then I feel guilty and I feel depressed and so on. That's not the purpose of a spiritual rule. The purpose of a spiritual rule, if you permit me, or a prayer rule, if you permit me, is for it to be more or less of a rule, like you have to follow the rules, and if little Johnny follows the rules, he's a good boy, and if little Johnny breaks the rules, he's a bad boy. It's less of a rule like that, and it's more like a ruler. It's more like a measure that I can use to hold myself accountable, right? So, um, back a few months ago, I decided I wanted to lose some weight. So, I told myself, I'm gonna give myself one thing I'm gonna do, right? So, I cut out, what did I do first? I cut out I think meat, because I've done that in the, before I was vegetarian before, so I cut out meat. And it's a very simple and clear thing that I'm gonna do, right? And it's, and it's objective, and I know whether I did it or I didn't do it. Now whether I do it or I don't do it doesn't make me a good person or a bad person. It doesn't make me more lovable or more unlovable. You all don't care what I eat or what I don't eat. And God doesn't care what I eat and what I don't eat. Nobody cares. This is something I'm doing for me, right? And 
I shouldn't love myself more or less for what I do, but I need some objective measure to just hold me accountable, just so I know that, oh, today was a bit of a naughty day. That's okay, we'll get them next time, right? Oh, today was a good day. Well, that's great, it's good to know. My spiritual rule is very much the same. It's not a tool to make me feel guilty or to make me feel self-righteous, but it's just a tool to hold me accountable. I have, to, I have to get it really clear in my mind before you start using a spiritual rule that God does not love me any more or any less for what I do. If he did, right, where would the thief on the right be? If he did, what am I going to do compared to St. Anthony and compared to St. Mary and compared to St. George and compared to all the martyrs? And Right? I don't stand a chance. Right? God loves me with an unlimited and unconditional love due to his grace and his grace his grace alone. And what I do and what I don't do isn't going to make him love me any more or less. However, what I do and what I don't do is going to modulate how much I experience and enjoy the love that he has for me. If I don't participate in that love, I'm not going to enjoy it. And that's and that is very much where the rule comes in. It comes in to tell me, oh, by the way, you're, John, you're falling, you're falling behind. Up to you. You don't want to pray? Don't pray. God is not the richer or the poorer for your prayer. And you are not the richer or the poorer for your prayer. But you enjoy your fellowship with God. You enjoy life with God more if you pray. But if you don't want to pray, don't pray. It's not my business. Says your spiritual rule to you. Right? So that's what a prayer rule or a spiritual rule is about. How do I get a prayer rule or a spiritual rule? All of these different ways of prayer, right? You incorporate them one at a time. Give yourself two or three weeks to grow in one, to learn one, to get familiar with one, and then try something else or try, or try more of the same. And like that, you can, grow, you can grow little by little in your spiritual rule. Now, one more thing. When somebody goes to the gym, right? Two guys walking out of the gym, scrawny me and, you know, big buff, um, you know, bodybuilder Joe, right? Who got the better workout, me or Joe? I don't know. What did you do while you were in there? Well, you know, I struggled for an hour trying to bench press the bar as it was about to kill me and decapitate my head, right? Whereas Joe walked around sh schmoozing all the other bodybuilders, you know, for an hour and then left. Who got the better workout? So my, my amount of worship or the complexity of my spiritual rule has absolutely nothing to do with my spirituality or my holiness. Maybe I'm more familiar with spiritual life. Maybe I've been at it for longer. So I've kind of built up more of a repertoire. Okay, that's great, but that doesn't mean that I'm seeking God with more earnestness, with more keenness, with more desire than someone who's a beginner. Or if I'm a beginner, it doesn't mean that I'm seeking God any less than somebody who, um, who, is, who is seeking God anymore. God loves me with an unconditional and complete love. And He wants me to enjoy that love. My worship is my plugging in to that love. You have the greatest computer and the greatest device and it's capable of doing the most miraculous and magical things only once it gets plugged in. Plugging in is my worship of God. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. We'll stand for a quick prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, oh God, thank you so much, Lord, for your deep, deep love for us. Please, Lord, give me Give me, Lord, to fill in those blanks with your name.
To live is Jesus Christ, and to die is to be with Him forever, is gain. Thank you, Lord. I wish to be with you always, every moment of every day. I wish, Lord, for complete and perfect worship. I'm far from that, Lord, but I'm beginning where I am, and I'm asking you, Lord, to take me from here, even up to the heights of heaven. In Jesus' name, through the intercessions and prayers of all the saints, hear us, Lord, as we pray to you, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. He is not temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Christ Jesus our Lord, the Lord. Now the love of God the Father, the grace of His only begotten Son, the gift and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace and may the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.